0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be learning how journalists can dip into the world of news products and AI. There is a lot of hype and concern around artificial intelligence and its impact on journalism. There's also plenty of jargon, misconceptions and applications surrounding the tech. For journalists and newsrooms to really make the most out of AI, as well as avoid the pitfalls, they really need to approach the technology with a tech product mindset. Here to dissect that with me is Christopher Brennan, a former journalist working for BBC World Service, France 24, New York Daily News and the Moscow Times. These days, however, he is the Chief Product Officer for Overtone, a company working between AI and journalism. Own the tech is his key message for today, and we're going to dive into the key spaces to watch and get involved with for your newsroom. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Christopher, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always great to, to be on a show that you've listened to before.
0: You listened to the show before, you're a listener.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of getting people's in-depth perspective on things, this podcast is one of them.
0: Thank you so much. It's really great to uh, speak to a listener, um, Christopher. We're going to talk today a lot about you know transitioning from being a journalist into working into AI and, and news products and kind of some spaces to watch there. Uh, so why don't you take me back to the start of your career when you started out as a reporter for the Moscow Times? Um, what led you to to work there, and what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can, again, tell by my accent that I'm originally American, though began my career in Russia for the Moscow Times, a small English language paper there. Um, I had studied Russian in school and had always been interested in um, in the country and sort of its developments, particularly around um, social media and things like that, the, the Russian protest of 2011. Um, so moved there arrived there when Snowden was still in the airport and so poked around the airport for Edward Snowden. Um, But then lots of things happened during my tenure there, the Sochi Olympics, the, um, the annexation of Crimea. Um, I went to Ukraine once back in, in 2014. Uh, From there moved uh, to the UK for a bit and then New York for many years um, and was sent by an American paper to, to cover Europe writ large Poland and Italy, the royal wedding in the UK, etc. Um, but then was based in Brussels. And so lots of conversations in Brussels at that time were on tech, were on data privacy and GDPR and Cambridge Analytica and all these issues. So I became very focused on technology covering it. And from there, decided to move into building product, which was still sort of evolving as a, a place in the newsroom at the time. I mean, now we have things like the News Product Alliance and different groups, and it's really become this this spine of the newsroom that can build interesting things for for reporters and the business side. Um, but became involved in that, worked for a newsletter project on that using language models, um, and then started a company, Overtone, um, with someone I met from that project using this then very much emerging part of technology, language models, um, to try and do something new. Uh, for for newsrooms and for journalism,
0: really interesting career path there. Um, so take me back to 2012. Then, what's it like as a Westerner working in Russia?
1: It it's sort of changed a lot even since then. I, I the first time I went to Russia was in 2008 um, as a student, and there was this period sort of between 2008 2012, even when things were relatively open. It was sort of the the Dmitry Medvedev years. Um, and there was some opposition media, um, the TV Dushed, If people know that, is sort of there was a, the voice to this opposition to the regime in Russia. Um, and Moscow was very much a European city. It was like living in Berlin or something like that. Um, that started to change while I was there. During that period, I remember the day after um, Russia sent its little green men into Crimea. And you could just see people's faces on the metro change, um, saying, "Okay, this is something new that we're about to to live through." And um, to my friends who are who are still there, it's it's only gotten worse.
0: Well, wow. I was going to ask, do you stay in touch with the team?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's people who um, I did not know. I mean, I've met Evan Gershkovich previously um, at parties when I went back. I went back for a little bit in 2018. Um, he is of now being detained, being imprisoned by the Russian authorities for no good reason. And so if people do want to follow up with that, com, I'll do a little plug for com. Another friend of mine, Eva Hartog, um, is Dutch and worked for Politico there. Um, and she was just had her accreditation denied by the Russian authorities as well. So um, very difficult time to be a, a Western journalist in, in Russia. And a lot of people I know have both Westerners and Russians um, have left the country
0: no doubt. What lessons did you take from your time there? You know, thinking about your career path, what stuck with you? What shaped you? Looking at
1: different sorts of coverage was something that was important in Russia, specifically at the Moscow Times, because you have all of this Russian language coverage, and that almost all of which comes from news agencies. Um, There is some investigative reporting in, in Russian, but a lot of the big news, Putin says X or such and such move is being taken by the Russian government it's all through news agencies and everyone just sort of reacts to it. Um, So being able to separate that sort of coverage from places where people are doing more sort of repertorial work um, or people are expressing opinion, it sort of gave me an education. There are different types of journalism out there um, and there are nuances in, in writing that are are readily apparent and um, should be acknowledged. Such as? When you have an article, is this sort of, a quick little hit about the metro being closed or Russia announcing an operation versus is this going in and talking to officials and talking to people who are ap- impacted by issues, which I think is really the core of, of journalism um, and something that a lot of the algorithmic systems that surface us news today, sort of the the recommenders on Facebook and Google, et cetera, um, don't necessarily take into account. So um, basically, that journalism is not a monolith. Um, And there's different ways to do it.
0: Right. One of the things, of course, we'll come on to talk about later on is the the ways in which news is consumed and distributed and and shared and misinformation in that bracket as well. What did you learn from your time in Russia about the way that information is spread and consumed and disinformation as well?
1: That's what I mean. So people became very interested in Russian trolls um, in 2017 after the American election and after Brexit. And... The Moscow Times was feeling the impact of Russian trolls very early in 2012, 2013, and 2014, um, with lots of almost definitely automated comments on our page about how we're Western shills paid by such and such foundations, et cetera. Um, And so in terms of the information environment, I think a lesson I learned is one way to sort of pollute the information environment is to just throw as much stuff out there as possible, just sort of...
0: Overwhelming audiences.
1: Overwhelming audiences, exactly. And so when you have these audiences who are just faced with reams and reams of information, um, that's a problem. And so the role of journalism is to help people make sense of the world. And one way to counteract that is to make the world as senseless as possible.
0: Right, because then it's really hard to untangle it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And I think that's part of why we need new tools and new approaches um, in that, we already have that. We already sort of have enough content on the internet to overwhelm people. Um, And with generative AI, that's only going to get way worse.
0: Yeah, for sure. And a nice little foreshadow in in terms of what we'll come on to speak about. So at what point did you then pivot into news products and AI?
1: So that was, again, after I I moved to Brussels in 2017. Um, In 2017 and 2018, I was here and really started covering what was happening in Brussels. So, GDPR um, came into force, I think, in May 2018. And I had written a lot about that um, ahead of time, looking at data privacy. And so I became super focused on the sort of data that was being used in algorithms. This coincided with Cambridge Analytica, Mm -hmm. which was happening at the beginning of 2018, (laughs) um, as well as the Facebook algorithm change of 2018, which people in news, especially an audience, may remember uh, as the day that Facebook. Sort of nuked news, um, and that you no longer received anywhere near as much traffic from Facebook um, to your news site. Um, so I began to think of why that was, and sort of the way algorithmic systems don't really understand the nuance of news or sort of what news is doing. Um, and that was my my impetus to move into news product. I got involved with a company called Deep News or sort of a, a project called Deep News um, that was using emerging AI models to make newsletters um, and worked as an editor there, but also helped in the creation of those models um, just because they needed someone with sort of a journalistic. Yeah. And to, to oversee that, that training. And I became very interested in sort of the possibilities of, of tech and of product. And that I, I think like a lot of journalists had always thought, Oh, they do this and it's clicks and it's shares, or it's, it's sort of techie. And I had always Code a little bit, and I have a somewhat technical background, but thought, oh, I'm a words person. Uh, I'm a person who does words, and that's for someone else. That's for the guys in the hoodies. Um, and then see, <laughs> but then seeing how some of this technology can impact on words can impact on what I love um, really drew me into that, and that's that's when I sort of made my official leap to to news product.
0: Was there a particular moment where, in your mind? You'd switched your ambitions from reporting on the tech scene to actually thinking, I kind of want to be involved with this.
1: It happened over time, but I think, I think sort of the combination of the Facebook algorithm change and Cambridge Analytica, um, during the winter and fall of, of 2018 was sort of that moment. I said, okay, I've been covering this stuff and it's interesting, but the way that this is set up now, um, needs to be better. Needs to be better. <laughs> and I think that it just wasn't this benign system. I think sort of people, especially back then, looked at some of the tech platforms and said, ah, this is just completely natural. And especially me, who sort of grew up with these things, mm-hmm. you couldn't really imagine another way of it happening. Google search was definitive. It was sort of the, the truth. Facebook was the reality of the social web. And you didn't think about the decisions that were made um to build those platforms
0: yeah what you were saying there about <clears throat> deep news feels like a good stepping stone really somewhere in the middle of not not exclusively tech not exclusively journalism somewhere in between
1: yep absolutely and so that was a project uh started by frederick for who's a longtime journalist in france um and i had met up with him and he was looking for uh, sort of english-speaking journalists to help make this product and it sort of fit exactly into what i was looking to do at the time yeah um and that was very focused on on newsletters and sending out the, the Deep News Digest, which I did for a while. Um, though when that project wound down, it was really the tech itself that um, had interested me. And, and so someone else, Philip Allen, I met through that project, said, hey, we could we could turn this tool into something that's really fit for purpose for, for journalism.
0: Yeah. Was it an adjustment, getting used to the tech side for you?
1: I think so there's just different ways of working. Um, in journalism there's always sort of this back and forth conversation and you' you're trying to sort of parse out the truth which um, is also important in tech but there's just different ways of framing that narrative. One of the ways I think the skills as a journalist and this would work for journalists other than me too um, can transition to roles like product is by thinking about skills like narrative as a journalist, you're meant to um, look for the real story in a set of facts um, and find that story and tease it out. There's a there's an example they give in uh, in training, in press association training, where you're doing a sort of a fake interview with someone whose house has had a fire. And I may mess up the details of this, that someone whose house has been on fire and she says, oh, well, what happened? Were you home and did you make it out safely? And then she says, oh yeah, I, I uh, just got out with my cat. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to ask for the name of the cat. Because if you ask for the name of the cat, the cat's name is Winston. And you ask sort of, and then why the cat named Winston? Oh, Winston Churchill. And it turns out that the attic where this fire was is full of World War II memorabilia. And she saved sort of a a special piece of World War II um, memorabilia. That's a long way to say finding that narrative and finding the real story within a set of facts is important as a journalist and as a product person you really want to make the narrative of why this product is useful to a person sort of what is the actual use case that they're going to use it for um and how does what you're building fit those needs
0: yeah what are the journalistic skills that you have that have served you well as you've moved more into tech
1: one i think is again that narrative if you can create a good narrative as a journalist for this person this person is having an experience because um, they have this issue with the government or something like that. And you can take that, those sort of pain points. People in tech are constantly using the word pain points. Um, you can take those pain points and create narratives around that um, as, a, as a product person. The other one, I think, is as a journalist, by definition, what you're doing is looking at something that's new. You're looking at some new events, some um, new understanding of things and trying to explain it. Um, and in tech, you're constantly dealing with things that are new. No one in tech has a complete overarching picture of every technology that exists, even previous technologies, and especially not new ones. So I think that was a misunderstanding from outside of the tech world is that, ah, this is a tech person. She probably knows all of this, these different coding languages, all of these different whatever. Um, and that's just not the case. Um, part of tech is constantly learning new things and that i think fits well with having been a reporter
0: so what have we learned so far that journalists and tech people are more similar than we might at first think and as the information landscape becomes more sophisticated journalists will need new skills to give newsrooms a fighting chance more on that later For now, consider that the best reporters are adaptable and inquisitive. They can sense a story even when working with a limited picture and ask specific questions to get closer to the scoop. It's the same in tech and product design, where details really matter. Tech people can come up with a range of potential solutions to a problem, but that isn't going to suit everybody. They need to hone in by asking questions and thinking about who is using it and what purpose it aims to solve. Without that, you're going in blind. Keep that in mind as we discuss AI next, a space where there is a lot of hype surrounding the technology and pressure on newsrooms to get strapped in. Christopher understands both the journalism and AI world well. He's going to give us a primer on what newsrooms really need to know right now. And we start with large language models, where there are two main forms, reading and writing AIs.
1: So language models themselves are uh, machine learning models built with a certain architecture called transformer architecture. Um, that looks at the relationship between words. And so they train their model on huge, 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 huge amounts of text um, from the internet. And they look at the relationship between all of those words um, and how they relate to each other. And so it has this sort of understanding of how language works. And so what you can do afterwards is you can use that same technology, one, for understanding a piece of text. If I an article into a model i can train that model to look at the article look at the relationship between words in that in that new text that new article um, and tell me something about it and so for reading you put in this article and say give me a one two three four five about how angry it is or something like that Um, And they've done this with sentiment previously whereas for writing um you are creating the new text, and the purpose of using that understanding of knowledge is the creation of a new text. Um, so, really, just two sides of the same coin.
0: Right. I think the, the most common example we've seen is Chat GPT. Is that reading and then summarizing? Is that kind of a little bit of both, or is, does that fall in one specific camp?
1: Yeah. So, you can use it for lots of different um, tasks, as people well know. Uh, Chat GPT, definitely in sort of the writing side and that it's meant to generate an output that is text, mm-hmm. whereas a reading model may generate an output that is providing some sort of analysis um, as a number or as a, as a score. Again, you can use both, um, though generally for reading models as opposed to writing models. Reading models are often fine-tuned, and that's a phrase that people should know, in that you can have ChatGPT, which is a chat, on top of the GPT model. Um, and you can send any sort of prompt you want into that. And so this prompt, you can say, tell me who is the most important character on Mad Men. Um, this was one of the first things, <laughs> somehow me and my friends, this was one of the first things we did, like who's more important than Mad Men, uh, Roger Sterling or, or Peggy Wilson. And it will give you that based on its training data, everything it's ever read about Mad Men. Whereas for a reading model, you fine tune that architecture and say, okay, you can't tell me everything. You must tell me either zero or one. You must tell me one, two, three, four, five. You must tell me banana, apple, or something else. Mm-hmm. You can tell me Roger Sterling or, or Peggy Olson. And I put in an episode of Mad Men, and it tells me who is more important. Yeah. Um, and so the real difference on the reading models is the fine tuning so that you can control what the output is. Um, Whereas in the traditional chat setting, there's not a whole lot of control about what that output is.
0: Right. Crystal clear. And you touched on a term earlier on uh, around the reading language models, which was sentiment. And I'm suspecting that one of the most common applications of um, reading models is sentiment analysis, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So sentiment analysis is something that I've have a little bit of experience with from the way people do it Previously, is often called the bag of words approach. So you have a hundred words in this piece, and you look at the times they say curse words, and you look at the times they say hated, and you, the they say and you look at the times they say smashed, and you look at the level of sentiment in that in that piece. That is not that nuanced and smart of a way of doing it. There's an example of sort of drug company slashes cancer risk. As a, as a headline. And so if you do traditional sentiment analysis on that, slashes, cancer, risk, incredibly negative words, and so it will think that sentence is incredibly negative, um, when in fact it's a very positive thing. And so now with the large language models, you can get more nuanced and look um, at the relationship between those words and get accurate sentiment.
0: Yeah. And you're doing a little bit of work around sentiment analysis, aren't you, with at overtone?
1: Yeah. So we... My uh, my co-founder Regan likes to say, nouns, adjectives, and adverbs. So nouns has been a place in in natural language processing where you can pull out an entity, you can pull out a name. This this piece of text mentions Manchester United. Um, adjectives are a little bit like sentiment, or sentiment is like adjectives, and you can say Manchester United is the best, um, and you can pull out that feeling, that sentiment from the text. Whereas ideally, what you do is you pull out both of those, and then you pull out that that adverb sort of how was it said was it said in an investigative way in a factual way in an opinionated way and then looking at those more nuanced qualitative aspects of text beyond just entity and sentiment
0: right and i imagine the 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 reason why a newsroom would want to be sort of involved in this space is to essentially do a stock take of their coverage, right, to assess what they've done over a period of time, what their coverage has been like, what maybe attitude or emotion they've attached to coverage. You know, the the reason for doing this is to inform your coverage, generally speaking, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one is looking backwards at your coverage, taking a particular issue, seeing if you're really meeting, writing what you should have written and meeting the user needs there. Um, and so you can use it for coverage-based decisions. The other way you can use it is on distribution and um, that there's certain sorts of articles for different sorts of audiences. There's some sort of, we've seen with some of our clients that subscribers are constantly reading one sort of article, whereas flyby users and, and other people are reading a completely different sort of article. So you're going to want to make sure that subscribers see one sort of thing.
0: Oh, right. So you tailor the headline to appeal to um, the the type of reader and their, their habits and loyalty.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Or even just where you're putting it, whether you're putting it inside or outside of a paywall, whether you're putting it in your newsletter or not, whether you're putting it on social media. It's not surprising that there's certain sorts of articles that do well on social media. We'll come on to that. But (laughs) doing analysis, doing analysis on your... Um, on your articles can help with
0: that right okay and that maximizes and emphasizes your digital strategy and whether you're producing content for clicks or uh, conversions or social media traffic etc paying attention to sentiment directly translates to the the treatment for your coverage
1: yeah so having that that adverb of the content is is helpful there and i think it's it's a different approach than people have sometimes taken I mean, that you're looking at the content itself. The focus is the articles and how do we do, how we take what we have and use it in the best way rather than how do we appease the the Google search algorithm today? How do we make things do well on Facebook? It's, it's because newsrooms can do both. They can appeal both to subscribers and to reach, to getting page views and things like that. Um, but you need to have content strategy to do it.
0: Is this foolproof? Are there any problems that can arise with... Uh this type of reading language model.
1: I mean, there's, there's other ways of doing recommendation as well. Um, and they say, ah, and they include other data, they include social data and say, ah, how many people are clicking this on Facebook right now? Is that going to make something good to put on our homepage? The way our models work is that we quote unquote read every paragraph of the text, as well as the full text of the article. And then we provide that information. So you can look down to the individual paragraph to see if the model got it wrong. Um, and that's something rather than being a black box, that is a, is a term you encounter with um, GPT and, and other technologies and that you don't really know how it was making its recommendation. Right. Because um, it's not showing you its, it's work. Um, and so there, there definitely can be problems of, of things being classified in the wrong way and part of the way around that is to be very transparent and to show your work.
0: Cool. Let's talk about um writing language models then. Um in terms of producing uh content based on you know artificial intelligence, one of the spaces I suppose to watch or one of the cautions perhaps to um consider is what we what we've come to call pink slime, I understand. Would you tell us more about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a term that's not been around for, for longer than generative has been a, a focus with automated content that's either meant to just get some clicks and get some ad revenue or meant to influence people in some way. And so um, with the rise of GPT, the technology to mass-produce all sorts of fluffy filler content pieces is super accessible to everyone. Anybody with GPT can write entire websites full of articles, um, hope that people land on them, hope they get a few cents of ad revenue from one of the, uh, the companies like Google. And this is a problem <laughs> because we, again, we already have enough content um, to overwhelm most people and that amount of content is going to grow exponentially. Not only that, because certain systems are meant for amplifying content based on clicks and shares, instead of A, B testing this article and that article, you can A, B, C, D, Z, Z, Z um, test something and and hope that one of your thousand articles that you wrote in two minutes can get some some traffic, can get some boost and um, make you some money. Um, If you're having these models write something, You can't just manually check these websites to to see if they're doing the real work or if they're not. You need some sort of automated um, solution to look at text, to look at what they're actually doing and see if it's just fluffy content that's meant to, to get a few cents or if it's doing the real work of journalism.
0: This feels like something we were doing before the hype and craze of AI that we're currently seeing in terms of like low quality journalism pumped out for the purpose of, you know, clicks and traffic is the point here that, you know, chat GPT and similar models have made that kind of easier to produce and easier to produce in mass as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I worked as a fact checker previously, and you could look at fact checking networks and they would have a few sites and they would have a few Facebook pages and they would try and get revenue through that way. Now anybody can do that by themselves without having any really sort of organization at all. Mm. Um, it's been very much democratized um, and there's benefits to having generative models democratized, but you, there's also dangers and, and one of the dangers is just huge amounts of, of fluff. There's, there's a phrase I had used before called the infinite time square. As if the internet is going to become like Times Square in New York City, where it's just sort of things reaching out to grab you and it's everywhere um, around you and you can't really leave. You can't walk over a few blocks to get to the park or anywhere else, sort of if you're continuously surrounded by Times Square, hoping to get you to engage um, because there's enough content to surround you constantly.
0: Is there a scenario where AI becomes the solution you know, fighting fire with fire, you know, having a tech solution to the tech problem.
1: I think that's the route that we should go down. Again, I have a a image I use sometimes, which is two pieces of paper with shadows on them. And so the traditional recommender systems that we use, use clicks and shares and keywords, and that's sort of the shadow of of the article. Whereas now with language models, you can look at the text itself. You don't have to look at the shadow you can look at the text itself and generate good data on that. Um, So with these nuances that you can get from language models, including GPT, um, you can generate data about what an article actually is. So we did a a study on this. Um, There were several websites flagged by the uh, organization NewsGuard, which manually checks websites. Full disclosure, I briefly worked for NewsGuard as well. Um, they manually check websites and they say, ah, these websites are using GPT to splurge content out onto the internet. The reason they found this is because it would include tags like as a large language model, sort of classic GPT things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the classic things that GPT says that would would show you these people are using GPT. Um, And so what we did algorithmically is we pulled uh, several hundred URLs from each of those websites and analyzed the text on it. And what we found is that For all those websites, the vast, vast majority of the content that they're writing, more than 80%, was this sort of low-depth, fluffy stuff that didn't really have anything to do with journalism.
0: Interesting. Do I understand that correctly, that you can use AI to essentially understand where content has originated from, whether it's somebody sat on a keyboard manually punching it in versus been spat out by a language model?
1: You can understand the content. So this is where it gets sort of philosophically tricky. In that if someone takes GBT and writes an article, mm-hmm. and I write an article about something, sort of a, a football match, and I just change all the nouns yep. personally, who wrote that article? Was it GBT or was it me? Um, it's, so it's really difficult to know. But if you look at the content itself, you can pick up signals um, on the full website level that they're that they're doing this for for made for advertising sites. I mean, even compared to sort of sites that you may or may not view as fluffy. So Pop Sugar is a relatively fluffy site um, and that its level of sort of low-depth fluffy pieces doesn't even come close to what these GPT sites are doing. Mm. It's
0: tricky. It's hard to know what is the, the right or wrong play here, Christopher.
1: Yeah, I mean, for generative AI, I don't think that people... Especially journalists need to be against all generative AI writing, um, insofar as it's useful to people. Right? Um, there's lots of newsrooms around the world working to use generative AI right now to help give people the news in a way that's useful for them, summarizing it or putting it into a into bullet points or putting it into different styles that may fit a certain audience that's not traditionally well served by um, by news, so I don't think we need to be against um, generative AI as a concept. We do need to be against abuse of generative AI, um, which is which is where that fighting fire with fire comes in.
0: We've discussed a lot in the last twenty minutes, and you'll appreciate this question. Hopefully, as a journalist, give us the top line. You know, if there's a there's a one message, a one need to know based on the, how AI is advancing right now. What is it that you think journalists need to be paying attention
1: to? My message for journalists is that we need to own this technology. We need to make this technology ours. We are the words people. This technology does words in a nuanced way that can be very, very useful to us. And we need to build tools that bring that journalistic ethos, that journalistic approach to things so that we can keep doing our work and make the internet a place where people can be provided good information. Um, there's a lot of ways this technology could go wrong. Um, and I think the, the values of journalism fit perfectly well along these models and that we need to be the ones investing in it, not just using tools that some tech company makes for us. Um, we need to do it ourselves that's that
0: could be a topic in of itself you know in terms of creating ourselves we don't necessarily have that skill set but that comes back to the need of needing to fuse these worlds than rather than treating them separately we touched on this before the need for people such as yourself who kind of have feet in both worlds and understand the two if we are to create products that also serve audiences and the journalism industry
1: absolutely i mean the 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 birth of the news product person um i think could not have come at a better time um, with the advent of large language models, because they are tools that help us do our jobs of informing people and much better.
0: I like that because it feels like there's a there's an opportunity here. You know, there's there's a lot of naysaying and a lot of fear-mongering around AI, but this also feels like an opportunity really. We've spoken a lot today about the opportunities within AI. As much as it's going to be a potential cure for a lot of the problems we're dealing with, there's also a lot of upsides to having techie people in the newsroom too.
1: Yeah, absolutely there's a, an image we use sometimes of the newsroom divided between red people who are sort of pure editorial reporters, writers, et cetera. And then the blue people who are on the business side, who are trying to build sustainable businesses out of these, um, these organizations and out of this writing that people are doing. Um, yeah, And then we show sort of this spine down the middle, which is the purple people. It's the strategists. It's the data people. It's the product people. Um, and those are the people who I really think should be empowered in Newsrooms, because they can use this emerging technology to connect what the red people, the writers, are doing to build a sustainable business and ultimately a sustainable internet.
0: I think they're also called bridge roles, aren't they?
1: Bridge roles, sure.
0: In in newsrooms, for sure. Christopher, I learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, this was a blast. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. A key message of today is this. The number one shared skill of both tech people and journalists is the ability to form narratives. Narratives help us to understand who you are trying to solve a problem for, and which product best fits that need. AI is no different. To really make the most out of it, make sure you don't lose sight of its purpose and function. This technology does have some kinks to iron out, but that will not happen by newsrooms running in the other direction. But what did you take from today? I'd love to know. Find me on Twitter slash x at jpgjournalism or email me on journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms. That's SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.